youngsters from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. <laughs> Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Mick Foley is a legendary professional wrestler who is widely regarded as one of the greatest wrestlers in the history of the WWE. One of the cornerstones of WWE's meteoric rise in the late 90s, Foley has wrestled under his real name and the personas Cactus Jack, Mankind, and Dude Love. Foley is a four-time world champion, an 11-time world tag team champion, a one-time TNA Legends Champion, and the inaugural WWF Hardcore Champion. Since retiring from wrestling as a result of a physically demanding style, he has turned multi-time best-selling author with two of his books reaching number one on the New York Times bestseller list. He has also started a career as a stand-up comic and a spoken word performer. He is also a very big Beatles fan and has tons of interesting stories to share about his love for their music and how he connects with their world. It's my pleasure to introduce onto the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, the legend Mick Foley. Mick, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, I know we've been looking forward to getting this together for a while, and here I am. Awesome. Yes, it's an honor having you on, and I'm excited to talk with you about the Beatles. So can you start us off and walk us through how you grew up and what kind of music you listened to as a kid? Yeah, um, I grew up uh, listening to country music on uh, the WHN AM station out of New York City. We lived in Long Island, uh, on Long Island, and my dad had gotten into country music uh, when he was uh, stationed in Germany in the Army. So, you know, you meet people from all over the country. I was the, uh, when I say strange, I mean, it was considered strange for a uh, kid on Long Island, you know, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, to be listening to country music when everyone else was was, uh, listening to um, I guess you call it pop music. Um, it would be the the uh, the Osmonds and the Jackson Five and uh, other guys who sang. Said the uh, I'm not remembering the name. The Scottish group that sang I yeah 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 Saturday night. Can't remember <laughs> the name off the top of their heads. Uh, but they uh, the teachers going in a circle asking everybody for their favorite uh, their favorite musical artist. And they were, like I said, Jacksons, Osmonds, uh, these gentlemen from Scotland. And they got to me and I said, Charlie Pride. And nice. just saw a, a bunch of, not scornful looks, but just quite, they weren't scornful of him because they'd never heard of him, you know? So it was just very unusual to have an eight or nine-year-old kid on Long Island listening to country music. Oh, wow. Yeah, but Charlie Pride is great, too. Kiss an angel, good morning. Let her know you think about her when you're gone. So at what point in your life did you come across the music of the Beatles? Oh, yeah, that all changed. Uh, let me think. So I, was pro- I was probably 10 years old. Uh, I was born in 65. 
So I was probably 10 years old when uh, my brother and I were rummaging through my parents' LP collection. They had a pretty sizable LP collection. Um, for all the country music that my dad listened to, there weren't many country music albums. Um, there were some old-time country music albums. There was a lot of Christmas classics, you know, the Nat King Cole and uh, Perry Como and the crooners of that era, uh, dozens of Christmas albums. Uh, there was Peter, Paul, and Mary, and there was one rock album, and that was Let It Be. So that was my first exposure to the Beatles, putting a Let It Be on the, you know, the, the old turntable and just really being mesmerized by it. And were you a fan ever since that moment? Uh, I was a fan ever since that first listen. And it's funny, given that this is an album um, that has the, the titular track, one of the greatest songs of all time, in my mind, and a lot of people's minds, let it be. It's got the long and winding road. It's just it's filled with really good songs. It surprised me to hear uh, John dismiss it in an old interview. Yeah, because I thought it was incredible. Um, part of the reason I loved the the Get Back documentary so much is covering all these songs. I dig a pony. Uh, two of us. Uh, I'm trying. I me mine. You know. I and but the one, uh, believe it or not, that really struck me and my brother who did not agree on much was the one after 909. Like you had an album with these amazing, you know, lyrical, uh, just, uh, just buffets. Yeah. I don't know. Buffet, just uh, the long and winding road and, uh, and, and the, the lyrics to let it be are just amazing. And here I am, me and my brother, my baby said she's leaving on the one after 909. And one of the things I remember about that is that I did not realize that it says move her once, move her twice. Come on, baby, don't be cold as ice. I thought that he said be co-device and that it was just a phrase I wasn't cool enough to understand. <laughs> But it's funny to look back and see that I was drawn to, you know, one of the first songs they ever wrote and they ended up putting it on the uh, Get Back album. But that was that was the big one for me for a couple of years. So that must have been a really cool experience for you while watching Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary. I mean, if that was your first favorite Beatles album. Yeah, I uh, I, I was lucky. I was renting an Airbnb in Atlanta and the Airbnb had a, it was a cool place anyway. Um, I was doing a few things in Atlanta and, uh, and they had, uh, was it Disney plus that, that was carrying it? Yeah. They had Disney plus and I laid down and I watched all three, uh, episodes, which was about five hours, I think. Yeah. Five hours in one sitting, you oh, know, wow. I just watched it through the night because it, going in, I thought, oh, man, how can, how can something be interesting for this long? And then when I watched it, it was Peter Jackson had somehow restored the, the, the audio. And I remember listening to one of the late night shows out how they did that technologically. And it was just a fascinating trip. Uh, I, you know, it sure looked to me like they liked spending time with each other. Some people, uh, you know, I don't know how I would have felt if I was like, you know, uh, you know, Say I was like putting a match together, and uh, like my opponent's wife was sitting in the room. Like that's the only thing I could compare it to. 
But like Paul said, like I think later he goes, "What do you, you know? Did she split a? People think Yoko split up the band because she sat on an amp. You know, yeah. I thought it's. I thought they looked like four guys uh, who really liked to be in each other's presence. I think they took George for granted a little bit. I do, right? Uh, but the uh, the whole the whole thing was a great journey to see some of these songs. Uh, I was, pro- I was probably a little younger than 10 when I discovered a Let It Be, because I remember it was still at the age where I would put it on my turntable. I'm sitting in the room I grew up in, which was an eight, eight, eight foot by eight foot, uh, 64 square foot room before the two foot extension. So the desk I'm uh, sitting at is actually in the extension. And that wow. was like bring up a whole new world to me. But I think I was probably eight years old when I discovered Let It Be. Because I remember listening to it night after night uh, on the uh, on the LP when I went to sleep. Oh wow, that's awesome! And now this moment is kind of like a full circle moment. We're here talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Mick, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned setting up a match, and I'm wondering, can you explain how you decided to pursue wrestling professionally? Oh man, it's so much fun talking about the Beatles, though. I know, me too. And we'll definitely circle back. But it'll just be to give our listeners a little bit of context about who you are and how important you are to wrestling. Yeah, for people who don't know, I was a wrestling guy. Uh, I broke in um, really on the lowest rung of the ladder. Uh, a, a local prom- promoter, when I say local, because I'm you know, on the island, Long Island now. Uh, a guy who ran all five boroughs in New York and Long Island, he's a promoter named Tommy D., saw a home video I did of me doing some wrestling, uh, creating a character, doing some wrestling. And uh, he put me on his ring crew. And if I could uh, drive down from uh, the college I was at, Cortland, New York, uh, to New York City, and set up the ring um, single-handedly, which is quite a task, uh, he would have, a, he would have a, a really respected veteran named Dominic Nucci work with me and work with me meant he would twist my body in ways I didn't know it could be twisted to try to test my will. Uh, and he was pretty successful in that. But once he saw that I really wanted to do it, yeah, we started learning. Uh, so that was, uh, that was the fall of 1985. And did the Beatles have any influence on your career? <laughs> well, I was thinking about it. I was like, wow, you know, uh, uh, I've listened to a lot of Beatles music, but I had a I had the uh, the ten dollar car with the thousand dollar stereo system, uh, you know, great stereo system when I was younger, and so I, I did a lot a lot of listening, especially when I was on the road, and I had my uh, Beatles cassettes, probably the sixty four to sixty six. Uh, sixty six through seventy was the second kind of greatest hits, the White Album. Uh, Let It Be, Abbey Road, those would be the ones that I owned and listened to um, uh, qu- quite a bit. And then it uh, it only dawned on me a few days ago that back when I made my entry into world-class championship wrestling uh, based out of Dallas, Texas, um, I came down for my first match and they said, going down the aisle, Cactus Jack Manson. And I went, that's news. To, <laughs> that's news to me. <laughs> I remember uh, one of my uh, um, 
mentors, a guy named Robert Fuller. He goes, you know, you kind of look like that Manson fella. Uh, and I was like, Robert, I, I, he was, fine. I'm a foot taller than he was. I'm a hundred pounds heavier than, oh, no, daddy, it's in the eyes. It's in the eyes. <laughs> looks like that Manson fella. So when I come down to the ring in uh, the Sportatorium as Cactus Jack Manson, I was a little forlorn. And Robert was on the card that night. And uh, he goes, Jacko, because I was Cactus Jack. He says, not too many bodies like yours that are successful these days. He goes, man, a man finds a good gimmick. He can ride it a long way. And I thought, hey, if I am going to be this Cactus Jack Manson, I'll be the best Cactus Jack Manson I can. And so within a couple of weeks, I was coming down to the ring to Helter Skelter. Uh, Actually, a heck of a ring song. And somewhere out there, uh, probably had taken down from YouTube 20, 15 years ago, is a video that I put together for the show to Helter Skelter showing, you know, this Cactus Jack Manson to be nobody to be messed with but uh, oh, wow. that was my most direct tie and then when i got to a point where i felt like i could you know where i could uh put my own stamp oh well, i was putting my own stamp by the character but i guess when i got to a point where i thought i had the authority or the juice to do it i dropped that last name um but no doubt that i sunk my teeth into it and then you know there was that wacky you know manson <laughs> Uh, theory that the white album was speaking to him uh which was craziness uh but i did i did grab onto that now if you could assign a beetle to each one of your personas which beetle do you think is most like each one of your personas i think john was more like dude love you know he's more <laughs> the, the 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 fancy those cool they all got into that that uh the mystical thing and uh, before I answer the question, uh, my, uh, if you're playing six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in this case, six degrees of the Beatles, uh, I have been Nora Jones's uh, Santa since 2014. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, wow. yeah. So the first Santa photo and, that, you know, for people who don't know, Nora's dad, Robbie Shankar, was very close to the Beatles, George in particular. Uh, and I, I was invited over and the first, uh, first Santa photo with her son is, uh, is me. And, uh, I was there for about 20 minutes and I had the good, you know, for about 10 years, I had the really good long natural beard that I would bleach each December. So you can Google me. I love, I was looking good. And there's a great, you can Google, uh, Santa and Nora Jones. And there's a great photo of me, uh, singing and messing up the lyrics to Silent Night as Santa. But it's a great photo. But anyway, my house and the, the baby was maybe a little less than a year old. He didn't want any part of Santa. But luckily, I had time. I had this cookie, and I was like, uh, <laughs> I was like holding that cookie. And then you could see the little fellow like taking an interest in it. And he was looking right at me like this. And I'm going, take the photo out. Take the photo, <laughs> and so there's a great photo of me and uh, uh, Nor- uh, Robbie's grandchild. And every year I write them a, a great letter. It's one of my uh, my hidden talents. It's not really a talent. It's what I worked on. I worked after my uh, successive uh, body part replacements in uh, 2017: a hip in April, followed by a knee 
I write me in 2017. I, I just work for hours each day on my handwriting so it wouldn't look like Santa's. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a, so every year they've received since I've been there Santa since 2014, but every year, 2017 to 2021, they've received the handwritten letter from Santa. And I make sure it's an extra good one uh, for Nora's family and the video as well. So uh, that is so cool. It's my Beatles relationship right there. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool, right? I don't know if you could assign. I don't. I mean, John as a dude, love to me would be pretty cool. I don't see any other the guys <laughs> being a mankind or a cactus jack because Paul is just so darn nice. Uh, I, I that was one of the things that really touched my heart and my wife's is just what a nice man he was. Yeah, I just I was really taken with the. The, the that five hour uh, get back it's you know what a, what a nice man he was uh, Ringo I think for anyone who uh, um, you know cast Ringo off as just being the drummer it, it was it was really fascinating to me to say to hear them go you know, Ringo just to you know pick up like you know like pick up the pieces here and they would start playing and no matter what it was he would have a beat going. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't need a massive drum kit. You know, it's uh, I'm a perfect example of a guy who, uh, who who didn't have a wealth of offensive moves, but I made each one count and, uh, you know, did a pretty good job of taking people on a, uh, on a, on a nice roller coaster ride when I was in the ring. And I dare say people who do 10 times what I could were unable to do that with their tools. So, I was more or less like Ringo with the basic drum kit, working some magic on it. Uh, and there were some other people, you know, who had the massive drum kits uh, who didn't fare quite as well. A little music analogy for you, a metaphor or whatever. Sure. Yeah, I love that. So do you have a favorite Beatle? Oh, man. Yeah, I think I think it's Paul. Uh-huh. Because... Um, when I started listening to the Beatles, it became pretty apparent to me that Paul sang the fun, the, you know, the happy songs. And, you know, as in the late 60s, that's when John, you know, he, Paul doesn't write lyrics like yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye. Yeah, that's, the, that's not Paul. He writes The Fool on the Hill, right? He writes, writes Penny Lane. Uh, so I, I liked, I liked those episodes. Not that I didn't like uh, John's stuff and a lot of, uh, John's solo work. I really enjoy listening to the, to this day. Instant Karma to me is one of the best songs and I'll take a deep dive and I'll listen to, you know, working class hero and things like that. Uh, but, but Paul was my favorite. And do you have a favorite part of the get back documentary that you saw? Yeah, I did. I think uh, the arrival of Billy Preston. Oh, great moment. Uh, what a remarkable um, musician he was and a really a common presence. And uh, I was really sad to learn that he had died you know, years before his time and gotten caught up in, uh, you know, the substances. And that was really unfortunate. But he brought some magic um, to those sessions. And again, I alluded to the uh, at the top of our conversation the fact that John, I guess, didn't think much of the sessions. And uh, you know, it, for years I wondered why uh, "Let It Be" was the final album when Abbey Road was recorded after it. 
but I guess uh, uh, they felt like it was unfinished, even though the takes that were recorded live on the, uh, the top of the building there, um, they sound tremendous to me. But when I was watching, uh, let me try to think uh, which one it was. Uh, maybe it was the Get Back track. Uh, when they when it's clearly Billy's uh, solo, they're not they're not showing him. And I'm like saying out loud, "Cut to Billy! Cut to Billy! Cut to Billy!" That's like that's a great shot to me. And I would wonder if I ever met Peter Jackson, I would say like, you have the masters. Like, why didn't you do an insert of Billy there? It's so important. You know, I'm a, I'm a stickler for details. So like when I watch any band's performance and uh, they're on the rhythm guitarist during a guitar solo, I'm like, make the switch, you know, make the switch. And that just <laughs> seemed to be a shot that was, uh, the, the other thing that bothers me is uh, in the remake of Miracle on 34th Street, where uh, Santa is doing sign language with the little girl. They need the reaction shot of the mom there. Uh, she yeah. does thank Santa afterwards, but you need that reaction shot. So uh, I'm, a, I'm, you know, coming from a wrestling background, which is a really visual medium. I would say more so than the, you know, the uh, the real sports. You know, wrestling is really uh, visual. Um, I'm really particular about the, the shots and reaction shots. I'm a big believer in them. And I just thought Billy should have had his solo captured instead of going, you know, it's clearly a piano solo or organ solo, a keyboard solo. And they were showing somebody else at the time. That, that bothered me a lot. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, in that entire rooftop sequence, you don't see Billy like once. You wouldn't even know he was there if you didn't if you can't hear the keyboard in the songs in the background. And his sound was so predominant on uh, on that album. Uh, it really was because the idea was to you know record these things live, right? Uh, not to use the studio magic that they used on Sgt. Pepper and their other albums, but here's four guys live, and then they realize, hey, we need a keyboardist. And that sound that's, uh, that's such a big deal on uh, Don't Bring Me Down and a big deal on uh, Get Back and a few of the others, like it just deserved to be recognized. It was just a few days ago that I Googled, um, uh, let me try to think, uh, come, to, uh, uh, come Together, because the, uh, the, the keyboard solo sounded so similar to what Billy's sound was on Get Back. And the first thing it said was it was not played by Billy Preston, likely wow. played by Paul, who was looking for a swampy feel. But I don't think there's any way Paul or whoever does that solo is able to do that solo without Billy Preston sitting in on the get back sessions. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Now, I know Let It Be was your first favorite album. Is it still your favorite Beatles album? Well, it's my favorite because it was the first, I don't know, I would say maybe the White Album is my favorite. I'd say maybe the White Album in its entirety, you know, and, and it, back in those days, you didn't, if you wanted to skip a song, you had to get up and move, <laughs> move the needle, right. you know, when you're listening to cassettes, then you have to press a button, you know, now with uh, digital, it's really easy. So, 
I would have, I don't know if I ever would have gotten up to actually skip over why don't we do it in the road or or song number nine, number yeah. nine. But it's just filled with so many great songs, like things you don't usually think of when you think of Beatles, you know, the, the greatest of the Beatles, uh, like Rocky Raccoon is a great song, but I don't think anyone's putting it on a Beatles greatest hits album. Uh, right. But it's filled with gems like that. I listened to it in the car uh, just uh, about a month or so ago, and I'd forgotten that Glass Onion, which is clearly a John, you know, a John Lennon composition, things like that. Uh, that's a cool song, you know. I told you about the Walrus, and you know, I can't remember the lyrics now. Here's another clue for you all: the Walrus was Paul. You know, it was it was really clever and and that on that song in particular man uh ringo drives a heck of a beat on that one oh yeah ringo's drumming is underrated across the board in every single beatles song yeah and he was a real oh here's my my favorite part of get back is paul i was watching with my wife and Paul says, here's a little something I've been working on. And he plays the beginning of Let It Be. And while something magical is unfurling, everybody, with the exception of Ringo, is just milling about and they're talking and they're eating. And I was like, don't they realize what's going on here? And the only one who seems to realize it is Ringo. And he stands in back of Paul at the piano and he listens and my wife remarked this like just the way he would tilt his face to look down like it was clear to him that something special was going on maybe you talk to Ringo in the modern day maybe he'll he would dismiss that but it looked to me like here's the one guy that realizes something magical is going down and that was my that was my favorite part of the uh of that whole documentary was that song because you would think in a movie version of it, you know, I'm, I'm talking about those defining moments in walk the line where Johnny cash with his back up against the wall plays Folsom prison blues, or even um, a fictional portrait uh, uh, like Eddie and the cruisers. When uh, the word man uh, plays uh, the dark side, and all the band members are laughing at him. And then uh, Annie's like, hold on a second. He gets a little beat going and they all start joining in. It's like, they've got a hit song, you know? So I love, and, uh, whether it's Aretha Franklin, like uh, reinterpreting uh, Respect, which was an Otis Redding song. Those are those great moments in the movies where the one song comes together. So I think if that was uh, ever put together in a fictional way, everybody, every member of the Beatles would be dropping exactly everything they were doing to listen in, to let it be. But yeah. no, in truth, it was just Ringo with those little, you know, just turn of his head. But it was obvious to me that Ringo knew something special was going on. Absolutely. I mean, Ringo was in tune with everyone. Yeah. And he was never occupied with his own ideas or his own ego or anything like that. And there's also this moment i read about i heard about it before i watched the uh documentary and it's uh paul mentioning to john that he has a lot of songs he's been working on and he wondered whether instead of getting one or two he might be uh, able to record his own song 
while remaining a member of the Beatles. And uh, John, uh, Paul says, John, John says, yeah, sure. I don't see why that would be a problem. And right there, you have the factor that could have kept them together for, like, you wonder why did they have to, why did they have to break up? Why couldn't they have gone their own way? At that time, if you weren't putting out an album a year minimum, you weren't even considered to be a working band. Mm-hmm. And now bands stay together and release an album, especially the older veterans, you know, every five or six years. I and mean, it's a big deal. And in the meantime, the world still could have had all the great solo music uh, that the uh, the boys put out on their own. But that's, you know, looking back now, hey, it is what it is. But I think if they had an avenue where all the guys, you know, Ringo included, George, you know, all the guys would have had an avenue to do their own thing and then come back together every few years. It would have been, I don't know if you could argue they'd be any huger than they are now, but it would have been huge. Oh, definitely. And Mick, why do you think that the Beatles are still relevant in culture? And why will they always be relevant in culture? Oh, man, keep in mind, you're asking somebody who's far from a musical expert, uh, but I do know, I think I do know a little something about what gives people staying power. I think every generation that has a chance <clears throat> to listen to their music <clears throat> hears them as the real deal. Um, and their influence is so wide uh, that if they, if uh, someone in today's world was not inspired by the Beatles musically, they were inspired by somebody who was inspired by the Beatles. Uh, and I think they're that rare band that uh, future generations go out of their way, or uh, not future, but uh, next generations go out of their way to listen to. And they're, I don't think, you know, you can see why someone might not like the earlier sounds just because they sound really antiquated. And it's amazing to me from a production standpoint how fast the Beatles went from I want to hold your hand, uh, both lyrically. And, uh, you know, sonically to from I want to hold your hand to uh, uh, Hey Jude or or just these things that stand the test of time. Uh, so there must have been something incredible going on on the production end from like 66 through 69, because everything before, you know, say 68 sounds a little old and everything following that is timeless. So I can see why some of the future, the current current uh, connoisseurs of music, you know, they might not be into a classic like uh, Rubber Soul, but I think you play the Abbey Road or uh, or any of the seminal songs, you know, I have to admit these guys knew what they were doing. Oh, absolutely. And and speaking of that, Mick, what have you been up to recently? Are you involved in any projects? Are you working on anything at the moment? Uh, I do have some new projects. Uh, I have a uh, a podcast that is a, a step down, uh, stroll down memory lane for uh, wrestling fans who are uh, big into the Attitude Era in the late '90s, and that's called Foley is Pot. Uh, if someone wants to find it, they can go to my website, realmickfoley.com, and I think there's a way to get to the podcast. And also, you might be interested to know that for two years running. I've been the most uh, requested athlete or wrestler on Cameo. Uh, and I do a, I think it's because I work harder and I personally enjoy them. It doesn't look like I'm phoning them in, uh, even though technically I am using my phone. 
but I really enjoy them. And I think I, uh, I, I try to exceed people's expectations. And I think we do. And outside of that, I do have a, a live a storytelling show, um, but only one show um, I toured for the better part of one full year uh, from September 2021 through uh, September 2022. But now I've got one show left and it's uh, December 4th in West Chicago and it's a fundraiser for a wrestler who's battling brain cancer for the second time. So if you're in 100% of my proceeds, go to uh, um, Joe. Joe Doring is his name. And if anybody's in the West Chicago area, even if they're not a wrestling fan and they're like, hey, I like this guy. I'd like to see more of him. Uh, you can find those tickets at realmickfoley.com as well. Awesome. And I'll leave all those links in the podcast description so anyone listening can go click them and check them out right now. And Mick, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking with you about the Beatles. It sure has been. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. If you're interested in Mick Foley, check out all of the links included in the podcast description. And if you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us at Beatles Earth on all social medias. As always, I'll see you next week with a brand new episode.